Welcome to the Trinity Student Managed Fund podcast with me, Will O'Callaghan. On this podcast, I speak to leaders in the world of finance, business and technology to give us students a better insight into careers we may wish to pursue. This episode is sponsored by Elkstone. Elkstone is a family office managing the wealth of its principals with a focus on real estate, venture capital and alternatives and a multi-family office regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland which provides both access to co-investing in their principal's investment portfolios and wealth management services to many of Ireland's entrepreneurs and high net worth individuals. Elkstone has a strong pedigree of backing many high growth tech companies and was a seed stage backer of several high profile Irish startups, including Unicorn Let's Get Checked, Flipdish, Soapbox Labs and Mana. My guest today is Francesca Whitehead, Francesca is an investor on the G2 Venture Partners team and focuses on identifying companies that are applying emerging technologies to improve efficiency and sustainability in traditional industries. Before joining G2, Francesca was part of the inaugural team of the KKR Global Impact Fund, where she led coverage efforts and investments across transportation, energy transition, and advanced materials, to name a few. And before KKR, Francesca began her journey working at Goldman Sachs in the Natural Resources Investment Banking team. Outside of her work, Francesca is a mentor at Endeavor, Techstars, Third Derivative and New York Fashion Tech Lab. Francesca holds a BA in Economics from Brown University and she grew up in Hong Kong, Vietnam and the UK. I hope you enjoy this very insightful conversation with Francesca. Francesca, welcome to the Trinity Esma podcast. Thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thank you for having me. If we start at the beginning, you have have had an incredibly interesting upbringing, having spent time growing up in Hong Kong, Vietnam and the UK. So do you think these experiences have had an influence on your chosen career? And can you give us a brief summary as well on your journey so far? Yeah, I'll start with the brief summary bit. So yeah, brief summary of my journey. Uh, those are, as you mentioned, places that I've gr- I grew up. Uh, then I went to Brown for university. And from there, I did investment banking at Goldman Sachs for two years. I was in natural resources. Uh, then I joined KKL's Global Impact Fund, where we covered a broad range of sectors, but I was kind of more focused within sustainability. I joined G2 about a year and a half ago, and the focus at G2 is applying technology to traditional industries to help companies think about solving some of the world's most difficult problems. I do think growing up in those places did influence me. You know, Hong Kong and Vietnam, you are faced with some of the worst parts of climate change from a very young age. And it is where my initial spark in sustainability came from. And as you can see, kind of from each job that I've had, there has been at least some link to thinking about sustainability in some way. Fantastic. Thanks for that brief intro. And I know many of our listeners are in roles or are considering starting their career in investment banking, as you did at Goldman Sachs. So before getting deeper into your current role as a VC, I'd love to hear kind of why you chose to start your career in investment banking at Goldman Sachs and kind of what was that overall experience like? I would say I had a, it was a great place to start my career and I had a wonderful experience. I would uh, really emphasize that. A couple of things, it really taught me how to just be a professional. That can be from everything from, you know, how to carry myself at a work function to email etiquette getting used to being in the same room as really important CEOs and helping them think through these important transactions and kind of working alongside them. 
I chose it because of that, of course, um, but also I wanted to work at a large institution where I was surrounded by very smart driven people. The Goldman Network, it still to this day pays off every day. So many of my friends and peers are at other banks, are now operators, are consultants or at investment firms, just kind of a whole variety of things. And I still kind of reach out to a lot of them today. So that's exactly kind of what I was looking for from my first job out of college. I was also looking to kind of better understand the traditional side of a lot of the sectors and industries that I still think about as an investor today, just thinking about kind of their needs and how they think about the world. That's very interesting. And thanks for going through that. And I think it would be very helpful for our listeners as well. A lot of people hear the term investment banking, and especially when they're starting out in university, they may not be aware of what exactly they do. So could you speak about kind of the typical tasks you did on a day-to-day basis in investment banking and kind of how did these then help in your future roles at KKR and now G2? Yeah, your typical tasks on a day-to-day is, I always say the best analysts are ones that find ways to make your VPs, MDs lives easier. That's really your goal. And so there's a whole variety of tasks, but you're taking notes in meetings, you're helping with you know, analysis and pitch decks. And at GS, we had a very big culture of everyone who worked on a deck would be able to join meetings. And so just making sure the right materials are in the right place. Um, People kind of have everything that they need ahead of the time for the meeting. And just kind of thinking through what some of those things might be as well. And of course, you're working alongside the MDs, partners and associates and uh, everybody to make sure that happens. And so that's kind of like the bulk of the day-to-day, but really I think the core of your job is for the analyst and the associate is just trying to make sure all the work products that are produced is error-free and you're executing on like the VPs, MDs vision for, you know, however the material should be. And like, those are going to be shared with the client ultimately, but that's kind of the storytelling portion of it as well. And yeah, not going to sugarcoat it. You will be probably working late and long hours, but that's just kind of what you need to do to get the work done. And so being able to do that and staying up late while still being error-free was a special skill set that I definitely learned during my time there. I worked in kind of leverage finance within banking. So I did get to work on a few LBO transactions. So we would provide debt to PE funds when they were, you know, bidding on companies. So I did get to interact with PE funds during my time at Goldman. And so it was like, I would be in the meeting room with them when uh, they were asking questions and to the company. And then I'd also be on the backside, helping the company you know, put together the analysis, the pages that they would then share with a lot of the investors to answer these questions. So to answer your question, the key things that I kind of learned that I still use on a day-to-day right now is, it was my first glance into the types of questions that I would be asking myself one day, just hearing that for the first time helping with the storytelling of materials that, you know, executing on my MD's vision of the storytelling and also the company's vision. That was kind of also something I still do today. And also the attention to detail, no matter how tired you are, is something that I think in any career path is very useful. It doesn't matter if you're not going into finance after as well. Okay, brilliant. Thanks for going through that. And I think that's really beneficial for for the listeners to get a a better insight into kind of what is expected in the role and also then how it helps you going forward. After Goldman, then you were part of the inaugural team of the KKR Global Impact Fund. Could you tell us what attracted you to take this role, first of all, and then what were the areas of impact investing that you were focusing on in the role? Yeah. So as I mentioned earlier, I think my upbringing did lead me to already have a natural interest in moving into kind of sustainability and impact broadly. And so towards the end of my two years at Goldman, I participated in this competition called the GS Analyst Impact Fund Competition. 
and my team did well now we came second representing a company called new story it's a nonprofit called new story they 3d print homes in developing countries and i sort of see that as the big turning point of my career i realized i could combine my you know interest of thinking about sustainability and impact something that I was passionate about with kind of the finance and business track that I had been on and in school and also in work um, and thinking about how we can apply these technologies to solve some of these you know, challenging issues that the whole world is facing right now. So at the end of my two years at Goldman, I was very focused on only joining impact funds. And that's the only thing I uh, wanted to do. And I also at the time really wanted to stay in New York as well. So kind of that combination it wasn't that large an industry at the time, so there weren't that many options. There were a few that came across my desk, but it was sort of a very natural fit and felt kind of perfect in that regard. And so to chat about the second part of your question here, KKR would invest kind of across the entire impact space, across the impact spectrum, as long as the impact the company generated was measurable against a UN Sustainable Development Goal, and the company's revenue was actually tied to the impact that they generated. The sectors that I covered within that, because obviously that's a much broader spectrum, I looked at things within kind of energy transition, electrification, sort of advanced materials, industrial tech, food tech, ad tech, and also ed tech as one that's slightly different from the rest of them. Okay, very interesting. It sounds like you had a lot of sectors to focus on within that space. And I'm sure that kind of inspired you then to move on to your next role at G2 Venture Partners. So could you tell us kind of how that role came about and even give some more detail on kind of what G2 does and, and what your role in the team is? Yeah, I had a great experience at KKR and only have wonderful things to say about the team, like friends with all of them. They're investing in some amazing companies. Just for my own natural personal interest, I wanted to move earlier stage. And that's kind of what drove me to look elsewhere. And I wanted to be in venture. And that's how I ended up at G2. Just totally a personal preference. So at G2, I'm an investor on the team. And we are all, in theory, sector agnostic, but kind of our thesis is investing behind traditional industries and helping them digitize and increasing sustainability in mind as well. So as the investor, you do everything from a sourcing to building out your thesis, you work on deal diligence, you're part of kind of the deal negotiations as well. You'll also help with portfolio companies and you also do firm building activities as well. Could you explain what a typical workday is like for you in your role as a VC? Yeah, absolutely. I sort of think of this as more of a, maybe it's not a day-to-day, but a waterfall and categories of activities that I'm meant to be focusing on. So the four kind of core areas in order of importance, I would say, is sort of deals, portfolio, sourcing, and then firm building. Those are kind of the four areas. When you're in a live deal, I would say a lot of those other things kind of probably fall away a little bit. If you have a high priority data room, that is what you should be spending your time on and prioritizing. You are also often balancing multiple data rooms at the same time. And of course, like this is not a perfect flow. Like, for example, if I set this up and I was on a live deal, I would still be doing this, even though, you know, I outlined that initial waterfall, for example. That's kind of how I think about it. And like figuring out how to spend your time is very important because you are kind of pulled in all the different directions. And then just to go into a little bit about what some of those other sections I mean by. So portfolio asks, again, Of course, if you have a board meeting, but you're on a live deal, you're still going to go to that board meeting. And your portfolio companies and CEOs may also reach out to you with specific asks too, even when you're on a live deal. And so you should respond to those because it's obviously important to be their partners. And that's kind of what you promised them when you made the investment. So you definitely need to kind of work on that. And I would say also kind of when you're later in your career hitting partner, general partner, you probably spend more time on the portfolio stuff and you're probably a little less in the weeds on the deal stuff. And so 
it all kind of balances out a little bit too. And then sourcing, this includes everything from chatting to other investors, bankers, consultants, also talking to startup founders, and also thesis building. So we do deep dives at G2 where I may have an idea about a certain sector that I think is exciting. I'll do like deep research about regulations, the landscape broadly, why I think this is an interesting sector, and also kind of map out what I think a good profile is. And I put that in the sourcing segment. And finally, firm building, that's everything from speaking at conferences, writing blog posts and podcasts. Very good. Thanks for going through those different aspects of the role. And I'd love to touch a bit more on kind of the deal sourcing and the kind of thesis building, as you mentioned there. Could you talk us through your current investment philosophy, kind of what makes you and the team partner with a climate tech business that you are interested in? I would say it really depends on the sector. You know, we'll find it like a specific area that we want to do a deep dive in. And I said, kind of chatted through how we would do that. Desktop research, reading industry reports, talking to experts, maybe there's books and podcasts that you're listening to, chatting to lots of different founders in the space. And kind of through that, you identify sort of a profile that you're looking for. That can take a long time and it can also be moving, right? You may find some new information months down the line where you're like, wow, that should actually change my profile that I have in mind. And so just to kind of give a concrete example, I did a deep dive on carbon accounting recently and I put a blog post out about this as well. And so what we were looking for in a company, there was kind of a few things that we were targeting. So it was that there was an easy dashboard, tech dashboard platform with a great UI that was like friendly for users as well. There's automated data collection. Maybe there's a little bit of an initial lift, but otherwise kind of ongoing basis, it's pretty automated and can pull from things like finances or whatever it may be. And then they also have a database of kind of relevant regulations and provided updates when there were changes to these regulations to their customers. There's just so many changes. The whole industry is moving so much that it's very important. We felt that it was very important. And another one is that they're framework agnostic. Again, lots of different frameworks by different industries, by different geographies that are kind of appearing. And so there's a bit of an admin button for a lot of companies right now. So if you can auto-generate and help with these reports, that's amazing for any of your customers. And we also wanted companies, ideally, that could also generate, you know, at least some dashboards or some pie charts or some things and bar graphs for board decks as well in an automated way. We wanted them to go down to scope three. And also we wanted something that provided decarbonization solutions, as we called it, not just kind of measurements tools. Just to give an example of what that means is like if you measured this is your emissions for company X, if you as the kind of decarbonization solution would say, hey, you should change all of these cars to EV and it would save you this amount of emissions. That's kind of what we mean by a decarbonization solution. And then kind of on the next step is that having a full suite of services to go along with that of we don't do this, but these are partners we would suggest in your region that may be quite interesting and can help you with electrifying your fleet, whatever it may be. And maybe they also have a connection or have their own like marketplace for offsets, things like that were also part of it. And the final piece is that we wanted someone with a really great reputation, strong customer service, and it's sort of seen as a trusted thought partner. People are very worried about greenwashing in the space. And so having kind of that brand equity is very important right now. Brilliant. There's so much to talk about on, on that topic. And I think it's a fascinating space, the, the carbon accounting and looking at carbon emissions today. So on that topic, if we look at the climate today, and there are so many different areas to look at. So how do you think about investing in key technologies then, such as carbon capture, that are still heavily subsidized and require a lot of capital investment? Yeah, I think it's no different than any other new capitally intensive industry getting off the ground. 
uh, when we think about gas stations all over the place, it was obviously incredibly capital intensive to build those out. And now we have a huge network of them. It's just anything with, that has deep tech that is new like that, it requires a lot of capital to scale the entire industry. And we're just kind of in those early innings, that's all. And so I think there's a place for subsidies, grants, venture debt, a whole variety of other solutions. And for carbon capture specifically, even like carbon removal payments and offset type things could also help the industry kind of finance themselves for a little period of time. And for us at G2, because we are later stage venture, it probably isn't necessarily kind of right within our purview right now with something like carbon capture. But there are plenty of early stage investors that do think about this all the time. And from my understanding and like chatting to them and like my thoughts about it is that you, know, you should just be cautious for companies that are in this space and make sure that there is like a clear logical path from your perspective that they could come down that cost curve. If it sort of feels like too many things need to happen, it feels like, like a science fiction-y type thing, that may not be the right place to do that. And there are, yeah, like I said, a lot of firms that have kind of that deep tech expertise, those scientists, those PhDs on their teams that help them kind of evaluate that. That's a really interesting space. And I think it's very interesting to see when we will reach cost parity with renewables and traditional fossil fuels and when they can actually replace them. So looking at the climate today, there are so many different areas to look at in terms of carbon emissions. And you can look at transportation, agriculture, supply chains. I think the list goes on. So in your opinion, what do you think is the most pressing issue that needs to be dealt with in the near term to address these issues? I don't think there's one single most pressing issue. They're all so important. And even if we're going to come remotely close to hitting the Paris Accord target, we really just need to do absolutely all of them at the same time. And I would say even the near-term versus long-term solutions, we need to start investing in those long-term solutions today to you know, start moving them along as well. Otherwise, we're just kind of never going to get there. So didn't really answer your question because we should do all the above is sort of the answer. And I also think it's even broader than that where it's truly like an all-encompassing thing. And as individuals, we also should be looking at kind of how our own decisions impact that, right? Like a lot of these things aren't created just because, it's because consumers kind of demand them. And so we should think about that ourselves and how we can kind of make those choices to help move the needle as well in that regard. For sure. They're really interesting points and make a lot of sense. I think if we took a detour for a second and we just look at maybe your own companies that you've invested in, Pivot Bio and Trove, which you're responsible for in G2. And I believe Trove was a company that you sourced yourself. So could you tell me what it is these companies do firstly and what made you invest and partner with them initially? Yeah, absolutely. And I would say it's it's different for both. So I'll kind of run through each at a time. So what Pivot Bio does, Pivot Bio makes microbials that replace nitrogen in the row crop growing process. I knew Carson from my time at KKR. I met him a couple of times. And Brooke, who was the partner that worked with me on the deal, he had known Carson for years, like five plus years. And we knew a lot of the investors around the table as well. So kind of when I think about like why we liked it and why we kind of ultimately made the investment, there are a couple of things. So one, it's a huge town. Annually, the spend on nitrogen is about 197 billion. And so huge market that you're kind of tackling here. Two, nitrogen is very, very important for growers to hit their yield targets. It is essential kind of in the growing process. And so we can't tell them like, just stop using it. It is important for them to hit their yield and for them to make a living. And it's usually their first or second largest spend. So it's, yeah, it's something where it's top of mind for a lot of growers. But even despite those things, it's 
very harmful to the environment. And just to give a couple of stats around like how bad it actually is, in the US alone, synthetic nitrogen fertilizer accounts for 330 megatons of CO2 equivalent emissions. And that was in 2018 that that happened. So that's about 70 million passenger cars annually, just to kind of highlight like how big an issue it actually is. And then another piece is that like more than half of the nitrogen actually runs off in the kind of growing process. And so the runoff then creates like ocean dead zones. Um, it impacts drinking water. It's harmful just broadly to the ecosystem of the environment. So kind of when we thought about that, like there's a lot of issues, large term, very like positive market dynamics that we were looking after. And there's also increasing number of regulations trying to also encourage farmers to find other solutions and growers as well want to find other solutions, right? They live off the land. They care about sustainability. So Pivot Bio had a, like incredible tech breakthrough. And so basically their solution uses kind of synthetic biology to produce these like proprietary microbes that they have that fixes nitrogen from the air into the soil. And so it eliminates kind of all the runoff needs. You need less nitrogen, but kind of the lack of runoff is a big part of it. And so the solution sort of spoke for itself in that regard. And kind of on top of that as well, we saw just amazing farmer adoption. Kind of when we started chatting to growers and looking at their data as well, you could see that farmers were coming to them year after year. Um, they were also increasing the number of acres that they're putting it on, the percentage of their total acres they were putting it on. We call it kind of net acre retention that they had. And that kind of alone was something that has continued post-investment. So that's sort of why we invested in Pivot Bio. And then to kind of chat about Trove. So overview on Trove. Trove is a B2B e-commerce provider. They help brands that want to do resale kind of set up their process and platform. And yeah, I, again, knew Andy from my time at KKR and re reached back out to him when I joined G2. So just a couple of things about kind of why we invested. So fashion's very, very bad for the environment. And actually, it's not as clear to a lot of people exactly how bad it is. So just to give, again, a couple of stats about to emphasize this. Fashion industry is responsible for about 10% of global carbon emission, and that's more than aviation and shipping combined. Uh, annually, the fashion industry uses about 1.3 trillion liters of water, causes 20% of industrial water pollution. Producing clothes, there's usually deforestation attached to that because you're like cotton or whatever it may be. Microfibers kind of go into the shorelines, um, reduces farmland. There's also chemical pollution with dyes, things like that. Only about 15% of clothing is actually donated, recycled, or resold. And the rest just goes straight to landfill or isn't like all burnt. So on average, in the like a Western family throws away about 30 kilograms of clothing each year. And the average item of clothing is worn seven times before it's thrown away. And textile, because of that, is about 5% of like landfills. So those are kind of some of the stats about like fashion is terrible for the environment. We need to find ways to solve that. And then again, Resale is a growing and large town. Resale is about $27 billion market if you also include like thrift stores and everything. And then when you think about kind of within resale, what's the fastest growing segment, the online like e-commerce market is the fastest growing segment. So today that's about $17 billion. And like estimates say maybe it'll be about $68 billion by like 2028. So huge growing industry. And so I feel like Trove was very well positioned. Resale is also kind of being accelerated further by millennials and Gen Z, and there's just kind of a very high adoption curve amongst those cohorts, myself included. Like I personally haven't bought an item new for like four plus years at this point. Like I buy all resale or it's like gifted to me by like, you know, my parents or whatever it may be. Like my mom's old clothes. I wear a lot of them. <laughs> so like I'm someone who truly embodies this myself. And you can also see it as well that you know, 
many peer-to-peer marketplaces and managed marketplaces have been emerging. And we all know some of the big ones, just to name a few, are like well over a billion in market cap, you know, real, real Poshmark, bred up, and there are others as well. But kind of within that market, Trove is the largest player that has scaled the B2B segment of that. All the others are kind of more doing peer-to-peer. Um, so the B2B play, why we kind of thought that was important specifically is that from a brand's perspective, they're helping drive customers to their websites, like to the brand, to the brand's resale platform, but still driving it to the brand. Whereas a lot of the other players are like pulling them away and driving them to their own websites, for example. So it's kind of a different strategy there. And we spoke to a lot of their kind of brand customers and it became very clear that like brands want access to this incredibly fast growing segment within retail. It's kind of a new potential revenue stream for them. It's a way of getting new and younger customers than they might've done before, kind of just a new customer category altogether maintain that kind of customer experience, start building that brand loyalty, increasing kind of retention and engagement with their customers, also improves their own like metrics on emissions, right? Brands also care about sustainability. So it improves their own like product life cycle, um, makes sustainable like sustainability a more tangible part of like the brand, like of the brand itself. So those are kind of some of the reasons that we made the investment. Brilliant. They're two very interesting companies to talk about and it's very interesting to get more of a, an insight into the nitrogen market and also the reselling market. I'm just curious when you do talk about Trove and Pivot Bio, how do you think about when to invest in these companies? Or does it depend from company to company in terms of like what series round to get in on and what is the investment size as well? Truly depends on company to company. For us, it's that it's what growth stage investors, we say early stage growth, late stage venture. So what we're looking for is like evidence that like the flywheel is working, that sales are like starting to increase. They're going through the inflection in their growth cycle. They're going to start growing quickly. There may be a variety of reasons. Maybe there's regulation change. We don't love that, but maybe there's a regulation change. Maybe it's just suddenly like they found perfect product market fit. They've been like chugging along and suddenly figured it out. Or maybe it's just that They've done like a ton of pilots and suddenly all those pilots are going to be turning on whatever it may be. They're going to hit that kind of cycle in their growth and that we can see a pathway to them being a very large business. That's kind of when we would kind of choose to make an investment. And if you look across our portfolio companies, there are like different ranges and stages there. And again, it depends on you know, what percentages software, because that will likely make an impact and also kind of your end markets too, because we understand that some Different verticals obviously also have different types of customers and those different types of customers may cause kind of that growth cycle, that inflection to look very, very different. One of the topics that I want to touch on, and it kind of comes back to your points on when you look at your investments, and I'd just be curious, obviously, it's very difficult to know if a company is making an impact or if it is kind of has a good ESG score. And greenwashing is obviously a very topical issue at the moment greenwashing being like the process of like misleading information relating to the environment. And I'd just be curious, how do you screen the companies you and the team invest in? Are there like public metrics such as ESG scores or even the UN Sustainable Development Goals that I know you mentioned you looked at when you were at KKR? Are there any of these scores that you use or do you have your own selection criteria? Yeah, I would say every firm has kind of their own definition of ESG and impact. So if you are kind of looking to go into that space, you definitely have to do your own homework as to what you believe in. So I will just kind of speak to you know, my own experience and kind of my own thesis around this a little bit more. So when I think about ESG and impact, I actually think of them as very distinct things. And I not a lot of people kind of use the words interchangeably, but I don't. And so the reason for that is when I think ESG, 
ESG is something that you can achieve even if you are like naturally a polluter, for example. You can be an oil and gas company with a great ESG score because you're trying, like you're the best actor in your industry. You use recycled paper, whatever it may be. When I think impact, I think that is a business that they make money by doing a positive thing to the world. So whatever that may be. And for me, I've mostly been more focused kind of on the social and the sustainability side, kind of with a lot of this thinking. I don't have as much to share kind of on the governance side, but there are definitely folks that are doing that as well. So I always use the example, a company that uses recycled paper is an ESG company. A company that makes recycled paper is an impact company. That's kind of how I differentiate the world. So that's kind of start point. But every firm has their own philosophy. And at G2 for us, we always say is that we don't have specific metrics that we look at but we wouldn't invest in a company that's doing anything that's actively bad for the environment. And most of the companies we invest in, like they are kind of striving towards a greener, more digitized world. And a lot of them, it may not be directly a thing that is doing that, but the thing that they're producing will reach that kind of future greener economy. It's kind of part of that future greener economy. That's kind of how we think about it as well. So if you look at our portfolio companies, a lot of them are clear um, impact cases where they make revenue by doing something good. And like two of the like Trove and Pivot Bio are perfect examples of that. Um, and then there are other companies where it's sort of more like tangential. As an example, Luminar is one of our portfolio companies. They sell LiDAR sensors. In order to kind of have an autonomous vehicle, the likelihood is, and actually in most cases, it is electric as well. So it's kind of implied, but in and of itself, LiDAR doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be greener. But when we see it, it's that, it is part of the story for a future green world. Okay, it's fascinating to hear the distinction in your opinion on ESG and impact. And it's clear, yeah. as you said, there's a lot of impact we've seen in your investments in Trove and Pivot Bio. I'd like to move on then to get some of your advice for the student listeners from your experiences to date. And firstly, it is clear you've been very successful in recruiting for some of the world's leading finance firms in Goldman Sachs, KKR, and now G2 Venture Partners. So from your experience interviewing for these roles, do you have two or three pieces of advice that you could share for the listeners that will be or who are currently interviewing for finance roles? Yeah, there are two kind of main bits I said. So the first one, no matter what the role is, learn as much as you can about the firm, the culture that at least they say and put out to the world, you know, and your about your interview itself. And so most firms will have kind of like philosophies somewhere on their website a lot of venture firms will have things like blog posts and like podcasts that you can listen to as well so you can kind of get a sense for the people who are there too and your interviewer specifically again kind of in venture they will probably have that portfolio on their LinkedIn or on their website as well so like knowing that portfolio really well truly just kind of learning as much as you can to show whether you'd be a good fit and it's also just a generally good way to learn about the industry too and like how people are thinking about stuff because you'll just start reading their thesis their blog posts and so kind of as you're starting out that's very helpful but even you know at Goldman's like the way I uh, did a lot of stuff was just like I looked at things like uh, they have their 10 principles their philosophies for Goldman for example read through those a lot of the partners will also do like little talks listening to a lot of those, again, just to get a sense for their thesis and um, like what it's like working there and chatting to as many people as you can that are already at a lot of those places too. So yeah, learn as much as you can. Here's kind of the, the main bit of advice there. And then the second one is kind of more generic, but it's really just actually like relax and be yourself in an interview. They are also real people and they're also trying to make sure you're a real person and you want to make sure you are 
someone, they are someone, you are someone kind of from both sides, you want to work long hours together and like, we'll be fine working long hours together. Um, so there is a personality fit element to it too. And you'll be so much happier if you find a good fit within that. So I really would encourage people to do that. And obviously don't relax too much. And also that's a personality thing too. If you're someone who like works really well under pressure and like need to make yourself anxious, fine. But just like definitely try and be yourself. Fantastic. That's really good advice. And I think to sum it up, it's kind of learning as much as you can about the interviewers and the firm and then be yourself. And on the topic of blogs, if the listeners are interested, I'll definitely check out your own blog on Medium. I'll share the link in the show notes afterwards, if that's okay with you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that, it's surprising how much you can learn about your interviewers, actually, <laughs> when you start looking around and even just like starting with that LinkedIn, you're like, oh, what do they have listed as their interest that they did in college? Like, you'd be surprised how much you can learn. For sure. And another point of advice outside your role at G2, you're a mentor at Endeavor, Techstars, Third Derivative and New York Fashion Tech Lab. So I'm wondering if you have had or do you have a mentor currently, what advice would you give to students who are looking for mentorship or guidance, particularly at the beginning of their career? Yeah, so those are I'm mentors to you know, potential startups to startup founders as they're going to process and giving them advice as like, oh, if you were pitching this to me, I would switch your pitch in this way. And so that's kind of what those mentorship things are. And, you know, I really enjoy doing that. I also feel like I get to talk to founders kind of when they're very early in their life cycle. It's just something I like to do. And also that's like start tracking a lot of these companies early on and hearing about some of these great ideas as well. So that's kind of that piece of slightly uh, separate. And then on the second bit around finding my own mentors, to answer kind of your question there, I always say I try and find someone at each workplace that I would consider a mentor, but I then also at least find one or two people that are outside of your kind of immediate team that can be at the same workplace. It can be fully external, but still in the same industry, someone who sort of understands the ecosystem. And there's kind of a reason for both of those. So a person in the workplace, sometimes you just like need legitimate advice of like, hey, like, is this the right thing to do? And you also want like an advocate within your team, of course. And then the more external ones, sometimes they're like, challenges within your team that maybe you want to chat through and so it's just nice to have someone who understands enough of the ecosystem but you can like be a little bit more candid with probably so I think both of those are very important I personally have had these relationships carry with me longer than I've stayed at a lot of those firms and so a lot of them now are like my external mentors right (laughs) who understand the ecosystem who I chat to regularly and I yeah I've stayed in touch with folks at each place that I've worked at all the places I've worked at that I would consider our mentors as well and my big advice on finding mentors it's similar to the one I, I just said about interviews too, is really looking for like a real mentor and truly someone that you like like and feel comfortable with. Because if you don't, you aren't necessarily going to be as relaxed and ask the right questions or be as candid with them and same with them back to you, right? Because if you're not relaxed, they're probably not relaxed and you need that kind of going around in order to get real feedback and advice, I think at least. Um, that's my style personally. And the other bit as well is don't shy away from peer mentors. I've learned so much from my peers that's kind of part of the reason I said that earlier is I joined Goldman because I wanted to be around smart driven people. They are all very smart driven people. doesn't matter that they're also the same age as you because they also have wonderful advice and are going through a lot of the same challenges at the same time as you. Brilliant. That's really good advice. Um, especially on when you do enter the workplace to find a mentor outside of your direct team, because I think it'll be really helpful for those of us that are starting on internships and grad roles, especially at the beginning of our career. We're nearly at the end of the podcast, but I always finish with the lightning round where I ask four questions and you can say the first thing that comes to mind. So firstly, what areas or innovation are you most excited about within impact investing and the climate tech space today? 
Oh, okay. There are three that I've been very excited about recently. So one is sustainability across the fashion value chain, like using technology or like biotech, whatever it is, across the entire fashion value chain needs to be done. Uh, Trove is one example, but there are many, many others and like different segments that are interesting. Two is like using software and robots in construction. Hasn't really been that much in there yet. And so again, another area I'm very excited about personally. And like third is, I love spending time thinking about looking at the decarbonization and carbon accounting tools. I do think it's very important. And I really hope there's one that sort of takes over and is in every single person and every single company's ecosystem. And given your background in investment banking and having transitioned into impact investing in VC, is there a particular path that one should take if they want to enter the VC world or what advice would you give them in that space? Uh, there isn't really one single path, I would say. I know people that were you know, operators first and then transition in. Others I've seen are like journalists, business school, and then in. And then also some people that do it straight out of undergrad and then some that do my route, which is kind of the more traditional finance route. But I've seen people that are very successful VCs that do all the above. And so my advice is really just, if you know that's what you want to do, maybe look at the funds that you like the best and take a look at what those general partners' backgrounds are and like try and mimic that. Um, what did they do? But again, ultimately, you need to take the path that makes the most sense for you and that you'll be the happiest at. What is the best book or podcast related to the climate or VC that you've read or, or listened to recently? So I'd say like every day I read Axios Parada, Strictly VC and TechCrunch. Uh, like I read those. I really like the Wall Street Journal, The Future of Everything podcast, actually. And then there are a variety of others. Like you know, TechCrunch has like some podcasting. There's Tech for Climate, Energy Gang, um, Quick Take by Bloomberg. There's a kind of lot. Yeah, I would say like listen to all any that you think are kind of fun and interesting. <laughs> and what are the most enjoyable and challenging aspects of your role as a VC, do you think? enjoyable part I love talking to founders I love kind of working alongside them and being their thought partner as they um, think through problems and challenges and also just getting to talk to a whole like variety of people that's a bit that I really really enjoy the bit that's challenging is that because of a lot you're having all those conversations you are saying no a lot as a VC and so you know the founders poured their heart and soul into this and like I took a couple meetings and then for what a variety of reasons I have to say no and that is incredibly challenging. It's very difficult to do. Fantastic, Francesca. Well, we've come to the end of the podcast, but thank you so much for your time today. It's been very insightful hearing about your role as a VC and your journey to date and the many interesting aspects of impact investing you're looking at. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. You have been listening to me, Will O'Callaghan, on the Trinity SMF podcast. You can find more of this podcast on our website, www trinitysmf.com and follow us on social media to find out more about podcast releases, upcoming events and much more.